Welcome to the Script PhD podcast, where we shine a spotlight on science and technology in entertainment and media. I'm ScriptPhD.com founder Jovana Grbic. Join me for smart, thought-provoking discussions with the brilliant scientists and creative visionaries finding unity between the analytical and the artistic. Narain Shankar is a talented writer-producer behind some of the defining sci-fi shows of the last 20 years. In addition to working as a writer and consultant on Star Trek The Next Generation and several Star Trek spin-offs, he has written for Sequest 2032, The Outer Limits, and has been at the helm of the original CSI, Grimm, Almost Human, and Sci-Fi Channel's television adaptation of the Expanse novel series. He also holds bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. degrees in engineering and physics from Cornell University. Dr. Narain Shankar, welcome to the Script Ph.D. podcast. Hi, how are you doing? Take me back to that early time of your scientific education. Had you planned on pursuing a career as a scientist or engineer, or did you always have creative aspirations? I had a kind of a strange trajectory. When I when I started at Cornell, I, I was actually very young. I had just turned 16, and I actually started as, as an art student. And I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I think I had been undecided, and I was leaning towards you know, medieval studies or French literature, really useful things. Being a, a, a good uh, first-generation Indian son, you know, the, the choices for professional employment tend to be doctor, lawyer, engineer, or business. And so in my sophomore year, I transferred into engineering. I always loved science. I'd always loved problems. I'd always loved everything. But I was always, always loved science and math. And so I transferred into engineering. And I stayed all the way through undergraduate and into graduate school. And in the last two years of my graduate school, I started taking tons of courses in, in literature and history and Humanities, and I sort of come back, you know, around moving full circle, and I realized at a at a certain point that I didn't want to be an engineer anymore. The thing about engineering, and and it's an incredibly creative endeavor, and and it really is. People have the wrong idea about it. They go, oh, it's just it's math, and it's non-creative for some reason. It's an incredibly creative field and an endeavor. But the problem I was finding is, as a PhD student, I was becoming and more and more of an expert of a, of a smaller and smaller corner of the universe. And it felt very lonely. And I think personality-wise, it's not really what appealed to me. And so I think I was drawn back to, towards history and literature and the humanities. And by the time I got out of graduate school, I managed to finish, I mean, I managed to finish my thesis. I literally told my parents, it's like, well, I don't want to be a scientist anymore. I want to be a writer. So interesting. And how did you end up as a writer in Hollywood? In college, I had joined a fraternity, which was also a, a literary society. And so we did a lot of creative writing inside the, the Cap, it's called the Cap Alpha Society. And, and we did a lot of that. And I had my, two of my best friends, we were very, very close. And one of them decided, as we were you know, graduating, he goes, I'm going to go out to Los Angeles and get into the movie business. Now, I was a, I was a, I was an engineer. My other friend, who you may have heard of him, uh, Ron Moore, who created Battlestar Galactica. We, were, we all went to college together, and one after another, we sort of pulled 
this third friend pulled Ron out, and then a couple years later, Ron got me out into the business, and we all ended up in, in the, the entertainment business together. So my first break was Ron had just – he had been in Star Trek for about a year, and he encouraged me to come out. I wrote a spec script for Star Trek, which had what was called an open submission policy. Um, so they would read scripts from anybody, any fan script that, that came across the transom. I got – on the basis of that – I got an internship with the WGA, which led to me becoming a science consultant for the show, and that ultimately led for me uh, to me writing scripts and ultimately being put on staff. It's interesting to me that Star Trek is such a common thread when I run into people working at the interface of science and entertainment. Either they've worked on or been inspired by the show in some form. What do you think it is about this franchise that so galvanizes sci-fi imaginations? You know, it's a really good question. And I think it kind of comes back to a real fundamental tenet of the show that Gene Roddenberry had from the very beginning, which was it was effectively an optimistic view of the future, is that technology and science would help us kind of overcome our baser instincts and our inherent human demons and let us actually get past Earth and into the stars and make things better. It really it is a truly optimistic way of looking at the future, and it's very seductive. You're so right. I mean, like, one of the reasons I wanted to be an engineer was because I saw the original series when I was a kid, you know, and I, wanted, I loved those things, and I wanted to make them. So many people in science have that same inspiration. There was this, I don't know if you saw this a number of years ago, I think it was History Channel did William how William Shatner saved the universe. It was, it's William Shatner driving around Los Angeles in his Bentley, visiting with scientists who were inspired by Star Trek to create actual things. So it's like the adventure of the Motorola StarTac, you know, the, the flip phone communicator style phone, and then guys who invented or made, you know, fundamental contributions to, to MRI and non-invasive imaging who were inspired by, you know, the diagnostic beds on the original series. It was hilarious. I mean, it was like, but, but it was really, it was really instructive because all those guys shared that thread. And it, it really, it was kind of a, a just a, a dream job to come in as a scientist. Oh, and while I was on Star Trek, one of the really memorable moments for me is I was invited back to Cornell give a talk about writing in Hollywood and you know, writing for Star Trek in this. And I gave the lecture in the same room where I've been a, a TA for physics 101. We'd be remiss to talk about your current endeavor without briefly mentioning your time as co-showrunner of a series that was absolutely a game changer for science on television. And that is crime scene investigation, CSI. It changed how you could showcase science and scientists. You know, DNA amplification and luminol and tedious bench work became very exciting. Did you guys realize at the time the evolution that was happening? Or has it taken time in arrears to fully grasp the impact? You know, it's um, we were right in the middle of it, but it, we were very aware of it. Um, and it was really, you know, it was one of the things that I actually loved the most about being on the show is that it really did have a very direct impact on the culture. I mean, like if you think about it in, I guess, yeah, 95, the, uh, the O.J. Simpson trial where you had to sit down and, you know, explain for days and days and days and days to a jury about what DNA was and how it worked. 
to where we are now. Like you can you can kind of lay that at the feet of you know a show like CSI. I mean, right now you you know if you go on jury duty, the instruction that you get from the from the judge is is called the CSI rule, which is you can't expect every prosecutor to do exactly what they do on CSI or have the extent of I mean, it's like it's gone the other direction. You know, the show was remarkable in in how it opened up science to the culture in a very, very big way. I think when the show started, there were maybe, there were a handful of forensic criminalistics programs in the country. By the time the show was in its like 10th season, which is, yeah, I, le- I left at the end of season 10, there were thousands. That's an amazing thing. I think many people were, were really aware of it because we were very active in science education. Our actors would go to Washington, D.C. to make statements in front of Congress for more funding for um, forensics programs. Whenever a piece of entertainment can touch the culture, it, it's incredible. And I've been lucky because you know, Star Trek The Next Generation certainly did, and CSI certainly did. When you can see that happening in front of you, it, it just gives you, you know, a real sense of, of the value and the power of telling stories. What would you say you personally took with you from the show as a learning experience for the creative work that has come after it? You know, with, with CSI, it's, I think the show took a lot of unfair criticism about, about like how it portrayed, you know, science technique. In general, I mean, the show was extremely meticulously well-researched. The only thing that we cheated was time frame. And to some extent, you know, the infinite budget of our crime lab, which is not unfortunately replicated in real life. The techniques that we showed, those were all real things. It was nice to combine the scientific bent of myself with the the other creative side of my brain, telling stories. I think a great example was there was a museum exhibition that was put together in conjunction with this show. I think the museum was based in Fort Lauderdale, but it was a, a hands-on forensics exhibit where kids would come in and they would actually go through the techniques and like investigate crime scenes. And it went across the country. We actually helped do a premiere in Chicago where we bought like a, like 1,500 tickets for, you know, uh, lower-income public school kids to come to the museum and ran the kids through the exhibit, and it was like a big premiere. And when you can take a piece of entertainment and then reach out into the world and get people interested in science, especially in this country, I think it's a, it's a great thing. Well, your current show, The Expanse, is a very ambitious sci-fi epic adapted from the books by Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank under the pen name James S.A. Corey. Most sci-fi that deals with colonization focuses on the journey and its challenges. In this world, what's interesting is that most of the barriers towards colonization have been overcome, aside from scarce resources. It's the complex human interplanetary conflicts and everything that happens there that is at the heart of the plot. Yep. Very much so. It's uh, Ty Frank and Daniel Abraham, who are collectively James S. A. Corey, um, the authors of the book. And that that was really their approach. Uh, there is a history to all of the things that you just mentioned, like how people spread out into the into the solar system, and how things got to be the way they are in the books. But yeah, they they, they wanted to tell kind of a, a a different story about 
the blue collar everyman in a solar system that had been colonized. And and obviously, like a lot of science fiction, we live in a lot of allegory in terms of the the big, broader storylines and themes. That was the setting that they chose, and they did it very deliberately. We tend to view colonization as this almost idealistic sci-fi bromide for all the ills that plague humanity here on Earth. But the expanse crushes those notions. They have vitriolic class warfare, resource allocation issues, terrorism, humans at war with one another, and even the beginnings of a political conspiracy. It's like we expanded, took all our baggage with us, and amplified our current deficiencies across the solar system. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And uh, Mark Ferguson, Hawk Osby, who wrote the pilot uh, and are you know, fellow executive producers on the show, they describe it in very much the way that you just did, is that even though humanity has managed to get its stuff together to you know, go out into the solar system, we brought all of our own foibles and problems and selfish nature with us, all of those seeds of destruction that you know, people carry within them. And we're, here we are once again on the brink, even though we've accomplished so much. Because we're humans, we're once again sort of, you know, on the precipice of destroying ourselves. And one of the ways I like to think about this is those same qualities that people have within them to strive and fight and really accomplish great things. They're, you know, paradoxically or maybe understandably, oftentimes the exact same qualities that cause us to fight and hate and and wage war upon each other. Even the way we talk about it, it's like we're going to conquer space. Like we just have that in ourselves as an animal. Mark and Hawk, you know, they always like to say, it's like, you know, we're going to get to a point where we have to, to choose compassion or choose destruction and just decide if we are truly our brother's keepers or not. And, and that's a theme that runs throughout the show over and over again. Um, and it's one that we're very deliberately, very deliberately hitting. One of my little personal bugaboos about sci-fi that focuses too much on futuristic gadgetry and tech is that it can cause a little bit of dissonance from the personal elements of the storytelling. And one of the things that impressed me watching The Expanse is, here's a show that's set 200 years in the future. We've clearly made technological leaps with our gadgets and sleek way of living, but it's seamless. So much of our current way of human life is still recognizable to me. Was this an important creative decision for you in terms of how to integrate the technology into the show? Uh, very, very much so. I mean, it, it's very much in keeping with the way it's done in the book, and it appealed to everybody. It, we're not about gadgetry. We're not about – it's all in the background. I mean, Ty and Daniel always like to say – People go like, where's all the artificial intelligence? Where are the robots? And they go, they're there. They're just in the background. That's just not what the story is about. I mean, it's like if you really think about it, you know, of course there's massive computation and robotics and artificial intelligence that's involved in docking a spaceship, uh, you know, in an asteroid station when both of these things are moving and revolving and everything's moving in space all the time anyways. It's like when you really think about it, there's a ton of technology. But in the show, that's all in the background. It's just like you don't sit in your car and you go – oh, my God, this internal combustion engine is so awesome, and you don't start talking about it. You just drive it. 
that's sort of the approach that we've taken in the show because I think science fiction tends to it tends to go the other direction because the people who are in it think that the gadgets are what it's about. They they put the emphasis on the wrong thing, and in the expanse, it's people front and center. It's not about gizmos at all. And finally, I've always felt that when done right, no genre is better for storytelling about humanity and the existential condition than sci-fi. You've produced and written for so many profound and terrific sci-fi and scientific shows, and you bring a unique perspective to Hollywood as a scientist. Do you agree with my assertion, and why do you think this is so? I do, and I I would describe it as people look at, and maybe traditionally, maybe it's changing now, but people have traditionally looked upon science fiction as a a niche, as a subset. And personally, I think science fiction is a superset, because within the confines of a science fiction setting, you can tell doctor stories, lawyer stories, war stories, personal stories – it runs the gamut. And if you're talking about pure, pure, hardcore science fiction in which the premises are are inextricably linked to things that don't exist yet, that's a form of science fiction. But like Battlestar Galactica, for example, it's pure allegory. They never dwelled in technology. They never, they never, you know, were hamstrung by, their ships could jump faster than light. Kind of pretty much it. The rest of it is, you know, it's, it's fighter planes in World War II. And, and that was the aesthetic that was chosen. Maybe, you know, one of the things that distinguishes the expanse and, and something that I feel is something that we're, we're trying real hard to bring to the table that's new is in the expanse, we're trying to make living in space and space itself a character. And in the sense of living in gravity situations that change, only having weight when your ship is under thrust or you're on a spinning station, dealing with the fact that it takes time from you know, for someone on Sirius Station to get a message to Earth and hear back, that all of those things become characters in the dramatic sense of the setting. It's, it, it's part and parcel of what living in space would be. And obviously, while we're, you know, while we're taking dramatic license with it, we're really trying hard to, to make it part of the show in a way that most people don't. It's very, very rarely done, if ever, on television. You have been listening to the Script PhD Podcast. I'm Jovana Grbich. Our theme music was composed by Dave Mendez. For more conversations with groundbreaking innovators at the interface of science and popular culture, subscribe to our podcast channel on iTunes and SoundCloud, or find a full archive on our blog, scriptphd.com, by selecting the podcast category. See you guys next time. Thank you.